What comes to your mind when I say Tibet? The beautiful Himalayan mountains? The Dalai Lama? Or the famous movie Seven Years in Tibet? There are so many books and movies about Tibet. No doubt they're wonderful, but they're usually not from a Tibetan's perspective. And I need to say this we're so much more than momos and singing bowls. I don't even confirm if singing bowls are a Tibetan thing. To give you that authentic sense of what Tibet is and what our culture truly is like, we are here once again with season two of Waking Up Closer to Tibet. Hi, I am Benzin. I am so many things professionally, but at my very core, I am a Tibetan. Join me in this brand new season. As I speak to some of the most celebrated Tibetan names who know Tibet in their own unique ways. Ten marvelous episodes with five amazing guests. In this season, I will be having the privilege of being in conversation with His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, Geshe Thupten Jimpa, Geshe Dorji Damdo, Pechung, and Reka Gava. So don't forget to tune in every Wednesday as we get. Bit by bit, closer to Tibet. What if I told you that the practice of meditation not only enhances our brain's neuroplasticity, but may also benefit people with depression, anxiety, and even bipolar in some cases? If you're intrigued to learn more about this, then this particular episode is definitely for you. Today, we have with us our very own esteemed guest, Geshe Dupten Jimpa, who has played a pivotal role in bridging discussions between science and Buddhism. He is a celebrated scholar, leader, author, and the principal English translator to His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, the founder and president of the Compassion Institute. Tibetan classics, and also the board chair of the Mind and Life Institute. He has translated and edited numerous books by His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama. He also does live translations of His Holiness's speeches. We have with us Geshe Thubven Jimpa. Many of us, because our native tongue is Tibetan, we tend to think in Tibetan as well, right, Geshe? I mean, When we're trying to speak in English, for example, we generally process the information and we respond in English, but we think in Tibetan before responding. I mean, if we find people like us find translation so daunting on a daily basis, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been uh, to translate complex liturgical texts for people to understand. I mean, you've translated, edited numerous books by His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama.、Uh, you've also done live translations of 
His Holiness's sure, sure. speeches, right? I mean, you okay. translate on spot as His Holiness addresses, right? That sounds absolutely difficult to me. Uh, so, how do you translate complex Buddhist terms? Uh, and concepts for people to understand because there are certain words I believe that are in Tibetan, um, both religious Tibetan, secular or lay, okay. that are okay. untranslatable. Sure. So, sure. what is your what is your frame of reference on this? <laughs> um, well, I'm not quite sure that um, as a Tibetan, when we speak English, that every time in the brain, there's a translation process taking place. Um, I'm not quite sure. I think it depends on the level of fluency. So in your case, I doubt there is a translation. Yeah. I think you are probably thinking in English. Um, <laughs> and also you probably will dream in English as well. So No, I won't. I, <laughs> I, still well, I, I think it. it's, it's a question of fluency. The yeah. more fluent you get, the more um, you tend to think in that language when you speak it. Because people have noticed, for example kind of almost like a kind of a personality change in me between me speaking English versus me speaking Tibetan. So clearly I'm probably, um, you know, thinking when I'm speaking English, I'm thinking in English. When I'm speaking Tibetan, I'm thinking in Tibetan. Sometimes, of course, we are, for example, if I'm translating for His Holiness, what I'm hearing is in Tibetan. Then, of course, there has to be a translation process that goes on. So I was, when I began interpreting for His Holiness, initially it was, you know, more of a coincidence. I told, briefly mentioned, uh, referred to it. But later when it became evident that I need to do this, I could do this for a longer period of time. And His Holiness uh, invited me to join on his travels. Then I took more professional interest in the art of translation. So I was lucky to actually know someone who was a professional interpreter in the United Nations in Geneva. So I asked her for tips and she gave me a couple of tips, which really helped. She said, for example, when he's, you are translating for His Holiness and when His Holiness is speaking about himself, make sure that you, as the translator, use the first person. So if His Holiness says, you know, he's doing, he has done X, Y, and Z, he's thinking X, Y, and Z. You as the translator should not say his holiness is saying. You have to say I, 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 even though oh. it feels weird. Because the important thing is the audience should feel that they are hearing directly from his holiness. Oh, the interpreter okay. is just a medium through which the sound is coming. So mm -hmm. the translator needs to use the first person word because the moment you use a third person language, they will feel someone in between. Correct. That was important. And then the second thing she said was, to the extent it is possible, try to listen in English, even though he's speaking in Tibetan. Because when you listen in Tibetan and then translate, then it's a much more effortful, slower process. So she gave me some of these tips. And then another thing that I found out was, on, especially on stage, because of my monastic uh, training with a little bit of meditation background, um, I was able to find the skill or trick to completely forget myself. So if I forget myself, then there is no self-consciousness. And when you are not self-conscious, then everything flows. The moment you become self-conscious, then you get nervous, okay? Because you, you become aware. Um, Self-consciousness is a funny experience. Self-consciousness is the consciousness of you being seen by someone else. It's, it's got a double. It's like, a, you know, you're seeing yourself reflected in someone else's mirror. 
And then that makes you feel kind of nervous, you know. So uh, I learned early on not to have self-consciousness, not completely lose myself, you know, on the stage when I'm interpreting for Solness. And when that happens, you know, I almost become in sync with his allness and, and everything flows naturally. So I learned some of these uh, sort of skills. But you are right. There are aspects of language which are mm. just translatable. And this comes up particularly in vernacular, especially in Tibetan folk sayings. There are quite a lot of sayings in Tibetan. And in Tibet is... Because in Tibetan culture, even though it's very rich in literary tradition, but the literary tradition was almost monastic. Mm. So, you know, mm. average Tibetan were not literate. And which meant it was very oral culture. And because of that, there are so many stories and sayings. So a sort of a elderly Tibetan would be able to come up with a, a saying appropriate to any given situation. So all yeah. of these things are memorized, passed on from generation to generation. And many of these sayings are very difficult to translate. Uh, and then, of course, there are aspects that are unique to Tibetan language and which is very difficult to translate when you're translating poetry because there's a word play in Tibetan poetry and word play is very tied to a specific language. So you can't translate that, re- reproduce that. And also Tibetan language is monosyllabic. So it's a, each syllable has a dot. So like So it's we don't have a separation between words like spaces, but we have a separation between syllables with a dot. And because of this, Tibetan language naturally lends itself to beautiful poetry meter, perfect meter. But in English, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's English is a language that has more on emphasis and stresses rather than syllables, you know. So there are aspects of it which you can't reproduce from one language to another. And I don't think it's just unique to Tibetans. You also have the same thing. Imagine if I'm trying to translate something from English into Tibetan, I'll run into the same problem because there are aspects of the language that are so tied to that particular language. But generally, I do believe that any important insight in one language, any powerful experience described in one language should be translatable in another language. That I don't think because the human experience is so universal, you know, and language is in a sense an arbitrary invention of a set of symbols that a group of people have chosen, okay? And, and so different groups choose different set of symbols and writing comes much later you know, historically. So whatever is articulatable in one language that is relates to fundamental human experience, I truly believe that it should be translatable in another language. Okay, well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> And if we try to actually think about this, language is that one thing that has shaped our intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so it's... Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of debate uh, in, among the philosophers on whether or not, you know, thought requires language and whether they can be a thought without language. There's a mm-hmm. big debate. You're right. I mean, our not only of our thought, but our perception of the world and our even our self-identity of who we are as an individual is deeply shaped by our language. Yeah? 
And every language has a different humor. It has a different feel because I have felt that personally. Uh, some of my, you know, uh, fellow uh, peers, uh, colleagues, uh, they would say, "Oh, I want to learn Tibetan." And I, I said, "You know, the the most important thing you need to know if you want to learn Tibetan is how to greet." You said, "Tashidile," right? <laughs> and then uh, uh, I think I would often use certain words like "desha" and "desha." You know, so they were like. This it sounds the same, but it, how come it has different meaning? Because Desha is like keep here, and Desha <laughs> is like she's sitting here. So it almost <laughs> sounds the same thing, but true, because true. of the pitch and because of you yeah. know, so they're yeah. like, wow, it's a difficult language. I'm like, no, if you try to learn, you can. So That's it true. is, it is like that. And and when you many of many of the people that I know when I speak in Tibetan they they tell me uh, as non-tibetans uh, that you know your language has a very different feel you know yeah. if I say like um, um, I really enjoyed this in Tibetan and I, if I say something like that if it's yeah. so we're saying the same thing but the feel of the sentence changes yes yes you know yes. so it's very intriguing. The whole uh, subjective language, yeah, very yeah. intriguing. Yeah, I mean Tibetan uh, as a language is um, quite unique, actually. Um, and the linguists now recognize that the closest family within that language is really Burmese, and it's now oh. a separate category called Tibeto-Burmese. Okay. Um, and earlier, some scholars tried to see if it's part of the, the family of the language in which the Chinese language is, but it's. Not. It's very, very different. Okay. And Tibetan is also quite guttural because, you know, I mean, non-Tibetans, when they hear it, they hear a very, very distinct kind of set of sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, as natural Tibetan speakers, we don't notice them because we just, it's so normal for them. But when someone, you know, my wife is French-Canadian, so my okay. in-laws are all... So when they hear me speak Tibetan, they say it's very distinct. I mean, it is a distinct language. Yeah. Also, Tibetan has this... You know, cadence, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and sing a song type cadence. It's a very, I mean, you know, as a Tibetan, you know, I shouldn't be bragging too much about own, my own mother tongue, <laughs> but it is a beautiful language. It's I okay, mean, I think, yeah. It is, it is a beautiful language, but it is also a very practical language. So although when non-Tibetans learn Tibetan, they find it very difficult, but in some ways... Uh, it's less complicated than Latin-based languages like French and Spanish, which has multiple forms of verb. Mm. You know, Tibetan has past, present, future, and imperative. That's it. You know, we don't have permutations. And, and also, we don't have gender for nouns like Spanish and, you know, French and German. Mm. You know, German has three genders, so masculine, feminine, and, and neutral. So the, the sentence has to reflect the adjectival uses change according to the gender of the noun. Mm. We don't have any of that. So which makes our language much closer to something like English, which is a very business type practical language. But at the same time, there are aspects to the Tibetan language which are quite unique. For example, like uh, uh, if you say, that means he broke the cup. You know, a kayo chasong is the cup broke. So now chava and japa in English, there's only one word break. But in Tibetan, we have two words because one indicates an intentional act, someone who's responsible. The other yes. one is something that happened. 
So we have this, you know, kolokor, kolokor. Right. That's actually quite unique, which makes it quite practical, you know, uh, because a native speaker will immediately know, you know, if someone is accusing you, karjane chapa, you know. Right. Those are unique aspects of the language, yeah. Yes. And um, I mean, I have to ask you this question since we're speaking of language. Uh, this is on a lighter note, of course. What are some of the Tibetan words that you think are almost on the verge of becoming obsolete? You know, words that we must bring back and use more often. Uh, that I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I wish we could do is that now that unlike in the old days, you know, when the educated literary population was primarily monastic but now the literate population is you know in terms of number non-monastic mm. so everybody gets educated everybody goes to school everybody reads tibetan and writes tibetan so what i wish is that there are quite a lot of words in literate tibetan mm. which should now become part of our everyday vernacular usage to make our everyday conversation richer so those are i think something that i Hope, but I think probably it's difficult to ask people to do it unless. So I'm hoping that some very clever or creative writers would start writing, you know, kind of you know fictions using mm. some of these richer resources in the literary Tibetan, mm. uh, in kind of vernacular style, and so that these words will become more of an everyday use. But in some ways, it's kind of happening. For example, because of The Tibetan language uh, broadcasting services like uh, Voice of America Tibetan and Radio Free Asia and Radio Tibet kind of Norway program, many of which are being now disseminated in Tibetan. And these, you know, journalists are translating the current news and situations and stories and affairs, and they are, you know, compelled to use. Uh, you know vocabulary, so we are already beginning to see, and I'm quite excited by what's happening now. That more and more Tibetans, you know, have the the vocabulary will become richer uh, because we use the language to understand and speak about the current situation in the world. And we, the laymen, we've actually discovered a few words on our own that are a mix of, you know, for Tibetans. I mean, where we live, it influences the way we speak. Oh. So we have this juxtaposition of um, Indian and Tibetan language together. Uh, <laughs> do do we have this? I mean, we use this. I've heard some people use this. They call it for bread. We call it bamruti, right? Is this a real Tibetan word, or have we invented no. this? No, 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 no. I think the Tibetan word is pale. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the bamrudi is uh, interesting because actually uh, it comes from, uh, you know, the older Tibetans used to call it pao roti. Oh, okay. Uh, so then the pao roti is this combination of pao and roti. Roti is Indian. And hmm. then eventually became bamrudi. But now it's now being referred to the, you know, the the sort of the regular Western size style hmm. bread is called bamrudi. And so people know what we mean. Hmm. And pale becomes a generic term, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think historically, this is how language has become rich. Hmm. Because, for example, like we like to think pema is a Tibetan word, but pema is in Sanskrit word padma, and singe is the Indian word sina, which has been Tibetanized. Okay. So, and we did not translate them because they don't exist in Tibet. You know, 
lotuses don't exist in Tibet. We don't have a word for it, but we mm-hmm. kept the Indian word and Tibetanize it so that it's easier for the Tibetan tongue. So there are quite a lot of examples like this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sina, Singi, Padma, uh, and uh, sort of, you know, a mango is called Am. And in the old text, it's written as uh, Maratama, Ama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is our language. And then we also have quite a lot of, uh, you know, words that are adopted from the Persian language in the Tibetan and Chinese language in the Tibetan. For example, if you look at Chinse and Baise, these are from adopted from the Chinese. Yes. So they have done this. And this is how cultures thrive and change. And because cross-cultural interaction is mm. also the impact the language. So our experience of being in India, the main Tibetan community, is clearly going to, you know, help invent new words, you know, new words and make it richer. Very interesting words. Yeah. I mean, for example, like my... Uh, parents' generation started using pura, you know, like puradu. <laughs> so like everything, you know, all is there kind of thing. Yeah, you know? so, It's like yes, puradu, yeah. yes. Yeah. So they they will, and then uh, lunch is referred to as barabaji, you know. Yes, that so is so true. Are, I've heard that. <laughs> yes. So we'll see, you know, which, which survives, which does not survive. Because in the end, it's a function of, power of the market force you know mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever is mostly used and find beneficial they will survive yeah yes but i think it's really fun uh, at the same time to really uh, tibetans living in india uh, they've really become a part of this oh, culture yeah. right yeah. it really dissolved so well mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. very nice to see that um yeah. what acted as a catalyst for you to write a fearless heart well, I think the fearless heart was, uh, you know, I mean, His Holiness has written um, two books on ethics. One is Ethics for the New Millennium and one is the uh, Beyond Religion. And in both of these books, he really makes the case that the foundation of ethics in any system of thought, whether religious, non-religious, really has to be compassionate. So he has really powerfully advocated a more universal approach to the language of compassion and understanding it and seeing it as a key human value that is very fundamental to who we are as a humans. So my fearless heart is the most important motivation behind it was to really write a book that would flesh out the sort of the important psychology from both Buddhist side as well as contemporary science around the concept of compassion and also explain the psychology behind the training that I have developed, the CCT, so that people can understand why certain things are being done. You know, what is the role of setting your intention? Uh, you know, how does common humanity perspective underpins? You know, for example, like, you know, in the Buddhist training, the common humanity, just like me, meditation is really important because that's what connects you, make a, make a connection between a total stranger. Because for our loved ones, we can totally empathize with them quite naturally. But mm. for someone who's a stranger, not so much. And for someone who we don't like, in instead of empathizing them, sometimes we relish when they run into trouble. You know, that's a very human thing to do. But in order for to bring kindness and compassion to a total stranger, you need to make that connection. That connection in the Buddhist text is made through 
reflecting upon shared humanity. Just like me, nobody wants to suffer. Just like me, everybody wishes to be happy. So even the person that I don't like, we should not forget the humanity of that person. So those are important teachings from the Buddhism, Buddhist tradition. And there, there is nothing religious about them. Those are actually quite deep human psychology. So my book was really aimed at, um, you know, sort of providing these kind of resources for general audience. Yeah. What would be your message for audiences tuning in from around the world? Well, I don't really have a message per se, but other than to really um, appeal to the audiences to really kind of, you know, to the extent it is possible, appreciate what the Tibetans have brought, um, you know, with respect, especially through the contributions made by his holiness. And also how, you know, Tibetans, despite our historical struggle of a political current situation of loss of our land, loss of country, our culture being threatened, our survival, very survival being threatened back home. You know, we we haven't given in to cynicism and, you know, defeatism. You know, we are quite vibrant. We have kept our courage and determination and we have kept our optimism and we have not lost our faith in humanity. And that's a powerful story. You know, not only are we so not valuing in our suffering and misery, but we are actually, you know, participating actively in broader humanity and digging deep into our own cultural resources to see what can be offered, what what contributions can we make to the betterment of humanity as a whole. And I think it would be good to, you know, pay a little attention and be appreciative of that. And also, to the extent it is possible, make an emotional human connection with the situation of Tibet, the Tibetan people. Um, Tibetans are easygoing, fun-loving people and, um, you know, who have thrived on the plateau of Tibet, referred to as the roof of the world, for, you know, thousands of years and developed a very unique culture and way of life and way of thinking and a way of being. And that is currently under threat of extinction. So I think, of course, right now, there are so many causes and challenges across the world calling our attention. But in the midst of all of this, my appeal is not forget us. There is this Tibet and the Tibetan people. Certainly, Geshila. Thank you so much for being here today. I can only say that uh, you've truly graced our show with your presence. So thank you so much for sharing all the wisdom and knowledge and your experiences today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity. I know that the topics that we cover are often very profound and may not align with the popular culture genre, but at least the very fact that you're listening to this and that you're interested in knowing about Tibet and getting closer to Tibet is a victory uh, for us uh, and for our vision with this podcast because the whole objective of this show is to ensure that we are able to not only preserve our rich culture and heritage, but also share it with the world. Um, and you've played a massive role in, in doing so. So thank you very much for listening to Waking Up Closure Tibet. If you like this episode, then please support this podcast by sharing it with your loved ones. 
you can give me a shout out and mention me in your Instagram stories and posts. My Instagram handle is Tenzin Chidin twenty four. That is T E N Z I N dot C H O D O N dot twenty four. To stay updated about waking up closer to Tibet podcast, don't forget to follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. To listen to more podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com or suno nay nazariyese. This was an HD Smartcast original. HD Smartcast.